you know, it used to be that people would ask me when, when I traveled, uh, what's your favorite country? And the, the answer that I gave, and I think the answer that a lot of travelers give is, that's ridiculous, every, com- every country is wonderful and I reject the premise of your question, right? Like there's, there's something wonderful everywhere. And then I went to Georgia. And now I just answer by saying Georgia. All right, what's up, you guys? My name is Mick Kraszowski, and welcome to episode number six of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Joining me on the podcast today is Nate Hake from TravelLemming.com, and I'm really excited about this interview because we're going to talk about the top five emerging digital nomad destinations. Uh, But before we dive into that interview, I want to quickly highlight a new iTunes review. Uh, And this review is coming from SalesSorokin21, and he says, amazing podcast, five stars. Miko is a great podcast host. If you're looking to be location independent and want to live a remote lifestyle, this podcast is a must listen. Looking forward to new episodes. Uh, so thank you so much for that review, uh, Salsarokin21. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a nice little ego boost to hear. I'm a great podcast host, even though I'm just getting started. Uh, but I know I got a lot to learn. So thank you so much for that. And uh, if you want to let me know what you think of the podcast, uh, please leave an honest review on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Um, reviews like these really help inform potential listeners uh, on if this show is something that they want to listen to, and it also uh, helps this podcast grow. So with that out of the way, I'm not going to hold back. Uh, I'm not going to hold you away from the interview any further. Uh, like I said, today's guest is Nate Hake from TravelLemming.com. Uh, Nate is an American from Denver, Colorado, who left his job as a trial lawyer in 2016 to travel the world full-time. He's since transitioned to a digital nomad life as an online entrepreneur and travel blogger. His site, TravelLemming.com, focuses on highlighting emerging destinations around the world. It is one of the fastest growing new travel blogs and has been featured by the likes of Lonely Planet, Mike, HuffPost, and US News. Not only that, but Nate has also co-founded a software company called Collection Harbor, which provides a cloud-based platform for museums to manage their collections. Over the past three years, Nate has traveled to almost 50 countries across six continents, spending extended periods of time along the way living in Southeast Asia, Mexico, and Europe. And not only that, but over his lifetime, he has been to over 70 countries. So he is the perfect person to talk about uh, emerging digital nomad locations. And I'm really excited. I love this interview. We spend a little bit of time talking about how... uh, Nate launched his podcast, how he ended up, uh, his podcast, his blog, and how he uh, ended up launching his software company. And then we dive into talking about these five locations, uh, which are all over the world and are some of the coolest up and coming digital nomad hotspots. So thank you so much for tuning in and let's dive into this interview. All right. Well, uh, welcome to the show. Nate, my man, how are you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Well, uh, you know, you're in Budapest, which is one of my 
absolute favorite cities. Uh, and we were chatting before we started recording that it's been raining on you. Uh, so sorry about that. But uh, I hope you're going to be having a good time here uh, soon in Budapest. Yeah, Budapest is always fun, even in the rain. Yeah. Well, it is a, you know, for me, Budapest is this like really beautiful city. I kind of like think about it as like what Paris was in the 20s. It's kind of like I I always describe it as that, as this like cheap, but like really beautiful architecturally. So uh, I love spending time there. Um, how many times have you yeah, been there? Yeah, it's so incredible, far? the architecture. Uh, this oh, is my yeah. third time around. Ooh. Yeah. Lucky man, lucky man. Well, uh, you know, I'm super pumped to have you on the show today because you are an expert on like up and coming travel destinations. And that's something that we're going to talk about today, uh, specifically digital nomad hotspots. But before we dive into that, I really wanted to get a better understanding of your journey and how this all came about and, you know, how you started your business. Um, And to launch that off, I got to ask, your website is called travellemming.com. What is a yep, travel right. lemming? Yeah. So, um, well, I made up the, the travel lemming part of it, but a lemming is actually an animal. It's like a rodent in Scandinavia, especially up in Norway uh, and in Canada. Lives in the Arctic. And it's this crazy story, but like back in the 50s, Disney did this nature documentary where they followed like these groups of lemmings and, and purportedly showed them engaging in such sort of mindless group behavior where they would follow each other everywhere, even to the extent that they would jump off cliffs to their death. Um, What's funny about that story is is that Disney staged the whole thing. Lemmings don't do that. Um, They don't, they don't like engage in mass suicide by jumping off cliffs. Disney literally threw them over a cliff and killed them for the sake of faking this documentary, which is a pretty like crazy and unbelievable story in itself. Yeah, that's not but like a very Disney rough. thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, you know, and it's weird because there's actually have an article on the site about this, but Netflix's Our Planet got in trouble for a few things where they sort of, you know, these nature documentaries tend to, a lot of them are actually filmed in controlled settings or indoors or even in zoos and stuff like that. And they had a few things like that. But um, the the documentary gave rise to this phrase that's, it's not the most common phrase, but um, about, you know, what it means to be a lemming. And a lemming is simply somebody who sort of follows everybody else, follows the trends like, a, you know, the same as being like a sheep. Um, and so the idea of the travel lemming is sort of just a tongue in cheek reference to what I perceive as the fact that, you know, so many tourists follow each other to just the same places. And so everybody's going to Venice and everybody's going to Santorini and everybody's going to Bali. Um, and, and we have this. This increasing problem, which I think is getting a lot of attention about over tourism and the fact that tourism is a good thing, but it can it can really ruin places at a certain point. And so the idea of travel lemming was sort of this tongue in cheek reference of, hey, everybody, like we don't have to be lemmings and I'll go to the same places. If people spread out across the many beautiful places in this world, there's actually quite a lot more uh, to see. Um, and so travel lemming is a site that our primary focus is on highlighting emerging destinations around the world. Uh, and really trying to inspire people to travel to places that maybe weren't already on their list, um, but are in fact actually really beautiful and amazing. Yeah, I uh, I 100% applaud that. You know, uh, I was born in Bulgaria, and so for me, it's always been like I know everybody goes to Greece, I know everybody goes to Italy. I get it, but like, please, people go to Bulgaria because it's so cool. So uh, I'm definitely 100% for that. Um, and I really want to talk. A little bit about also like how did that 
kind of like come up as a business as well is how did you get started with blogging and and how did that turn into your business yeah so i'm actually a trial lawyer my journey is a is a weird one for sure so i spent five years working at a large law firm trying big civil litigation cases where there was like millions of dollars at stake and i would i I literally did trials on like a lot of lawyers um but While I liked that work, it was quite exhausting. And so I took a year off when I was right around the time that I turned 30, sort of had my my midlife, quarter-life crisis, depending on how long I live, and then um, was decided I was going to go travel for a year to go see the world for a year. And about halfway through, decided, you know what, I don't really want to stop doing this. Um, And I had met some folks along the way who were working online and traveling. You know, I had been to a few places where there were um, I had come across some digital nomads. And uh, so my first instinct was to start a travel blog, mostly because that's that's when you think about ways to make an income online and you don't, you're unaware of the other options that are out there. That's the first one that pops to mind. At least for me, it did. It mm-hmm. makes the most sense. I'm traveling like this is what can you do with this? You could be a travel writer, you could be a tra- you know, travel YouTuber, it could be a travel blogger. Um, and so I just started the, the site. Um, and it's you know, it's grown really steadily since then. We've sort of honed in on this focus on um, emerging destinations. We do an annual awards uh, where we gather a lot of the top influencers uh, in the travel space um, to give awards out for uh, the best sort of destinations for a given year that are that are off the beaten path and are emerging. And that gets a lot of press. And so it's sort of grown um, over the years, you know, and these things, these things tend to evolve. And then the other thing that happened was so after a couple months of starting the blog, you realize pretty quickly when you start a travel blog that like it is not going to make you a lot of money um, right out of the gate. So I did a whole bunch of other things. I did freelance writing. I've done, um, I have done, um, I I started, the most significant thing was is that I started a software company. So I have a a pretty sizable, um, like fully remote software company that I started with a few partners in New York and we built software for museums, which is completely unrelated um, for the most part to uh, to the travel space, um, but gives me a sort of different a, a different uh, way of approaching sort of income and and, and all that and working online. Um, and so it's very interesting, I think, to sometimes to see the overlap of those skills because they're on the opposite ends of of the typical sort of digital nomads jobs. On the one hand, you work in a software company. On the other hand working on a, a content uh, blog um, so it's been it's been quite a learning curve especially for someone who went to law school and I, now I use very little of this like seven year quarter million dollar worth of schooling that I used um, and so I've had to do a lot of teaching myself along the way mm, I had I see I I mean I've been very familiar with your website for a while but I didn't know about the software company that's really cool and what was the like growth on that like how long ago did you start it yeah, so it's still, you know, it's a, it's a, because it's enterprise grade software, our product is pretty significant. So it takes a while um, or a lot of money um, to build something like that. So I started that around the same, like just shortly after the blog. So it's been a year and a half now, but we only recently launched our product because it took about a year and a half to develop it. You know, you have to go out and in order to be able to fund that, that's not the sort of thing you can just fund out of your own pocket. So we had to go out and get an investor and then we had to, um, you know, we had to build up that team. And so we just launched that product a couple months ago. We've got our first customers on board. 
um, we brought on uh, last month was hiring up a sales team. Um, so it's a very different um, it's a very different path and a very different set of skills um, that I'm using when I switch between the two. What is the yeah? That's what I was gonna ask. Is like what is the difference between running the blog and running that software company in terms of doing it remotely? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the different like feelings and the and the different skills that you're using on both sides. Yeah, of course. So you know when we, when we started the software company, I think originally my partners had. Um, had contemplated that we were going to be a little bit more traditional in the sense of mm -hmm. um, there was even discussion of me moving to New York possibly um, and starting it there. And then quickly I sort of realized like, why do I need to do that? Like, why is there this like, this is my company. Like, why is there this obsession with the idea that people have to go into a physical office? And then you start doing the math on like, well, how much is an office gonna cost in New York? And wouldn't that money be better spent on developing a better product and marketing it? Um, and so pretty quickly I, I decided to persuade them and I did to make us a fully remote organization or frog. And there's actually a lot of frogs out there. Like WordPress is itself a, a frog, automatic, the company that's behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's quite a few other ones out there where they don't have a physical office and everybody just works remotely. And so, you know, we've had developers in Brazil. Um, we've, I've had my partners in New York. I've hired people in the Philippines, sort of all over the world and everybody works online. I've met my, I've, one of my partners, I've only met once in the course of a year and a half of working with her. Um, and so that's, that's interesting, that collaboration aspect of it, because that's on the travel blog. Now, now that the blog has grown, I do have a couple of employees, but for a while there, it was just me by, by myself. And when you start a website by yourself and you have no technical expertise, boy, is that difficult to learn. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, you can install a theme, I mean, you can do the, you can get a basic plug up, but as soon as you try to do anything that's a little more interesting or a little more technical, you want to do something custom, you really have to start learning. And so I had to teach myself some basic HTML and some CSS and really like a, a lot of things. And then, and then the site didn't look, it looked a little amateurish. We just went through a big uh, redesign um, with a professional designer and everything to make it look a little, a little bit more professional because uh, it had kind of outgrown its, uh, its origins as a solopreneur um, a solopreneur venture. So yeah, there's a, there's a big differences. What I would say is there's actually a, quite a bit more overlap than I had expected, particularly when it comes to the digital marketing side of it. You know, when you think about it, both a blog or a software company or really anything come down to finding people who are your audience or your customers and, and finding some sort of engine for getting those people to come and see your product or see your content. Um, and so learning things like search engine optimization, um, Facebook ads, you know, d these digital marketing components of it, really, I think I've been pleasantly surprised at how well those skills have translated between the two. Um, you know, if you, the, the same things that help you to rank a travel blog on Google can also apply to a software company. And the same things that can help you to acquire customers by running a, you know, a digital campaign, a PVC campaign on Google, or on Facebook can also be applied uh, to a software company. And so I, I, I think particularly with the direction that the internet is going, the direction that marketing is going, I tell just about everybody, you know, even if you're a graphic designer or something, you should have a basic understanding of digital marketing because it is, is the core of the way that the internet economy is functioning moving forward. And it really cuts across just about everything that we do.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, now that we're, like, talking, I'm kind of thinking, like, man, we should probably schedule, like, another interview so we can dive into, like, all about, like, the, you know, the software company and how it plays around with the, the blog. I think that would be super, super interesting. So we can definitely chat about yeah, that later. Absolutely. Um, but we got to jump into, because I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on what are some of the next big digital nomad hotspots because you've been to a lot of these places. You've been to how many countries now? Oh, I think in, over the course of my life, I've been to 70. And in the last wow. uh, three years, uh, while, while doing this as a digital nomad, I've been to 46 or 47, something like that at this point. Okay, yeah. So essentially, you've got a pretty good grasp on where it's cool to be as digital nomad and where it's easy to work. So I'd love to yeah, jump into right. that and chat about it. And um, yeah, essentially, like, let's launch into it. Um, I know that we talked about five specific locations that you want to share. And so I believe Mm -hmm. the first one was uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. So tell me about Tbilisi, man. Yeah, Tbilisi is, I always tell people, you know, it used to be that people would ask me when when I traveled, uh, what's your favorite country? And the the answer that I gave, and I think the answer that a lot of travelers give is, that's ridiculous. Every Every country is wonderful and I reject the premise of your question right like <laughs> right. there's there's something wonderful everywhere and then I went to Georgia and now <laughs> I just answer by saying Georgia um, which is usually followed by people saying the state in the US because a lot of people aren't aren't super familiar with Georgia as a country um, for those who don't know it's you know it's it's a caucus country sort of nestled between Turkey and Russia and Azerbaijan and Armenia between the black and Caspian seas it is it is really a very wonderful country because it's at the intersection of all these different cultures. If you think about, like you think back to like Marco Polo and the Silk Road, or you think about like the trade between East and West, like a lot of that ran through Georgia and a lot of that history is still there and you really feel it in Tbilisi. And so the same is how we were talking earlier about how Budapest has this like sort of wonderful architecture and you sort of have, it has this beautiful feel as you're walking through it. Tbilisi is like a smaller version of that. It's, it's a lot of the architecture is old there particularly in the old town um, but it is just gorgeous topping all of that off it is a very affordable destination like the, I, the average cost there really isn't that much more expensive than what you would pay in like Bangkok or Saigon or somewhere in Southeast Asia and considering that it, it feels like Europe and in fact if you tell a Georgian that they're not a part of Europe that they're part of Asia they'll get really upset at you um, and so everything about Tbilisi feels like a European city um, but at a price that's actually quite a bit cheaper, even than the like, even cheaper than uh, or more affordable. I don't like the word cheap for uh, for reasons I could explain, but it's more affordable than uh, even a lot of East, other Eastern European countries. So it's great place to go. They really have this. The other thing that, about it that's wonderful is the visa situation is just like excellent there. Georgia is very. They sort of have their arms open to the world. They really want. Um, people to come there. They really want people to start businesses there. You you get, I think it's a 360 day visa just when you when you arrive, like just the stamp in your passport is good for almost a year, which I can't think of another country I've been to where you walk in and they're like, okay, you can stay for a year, <laughs> you mm. know? Um, and so if you're, if you're thinking about a place where you want to spend more time, you know, visas are always an issue for digital nomads. They're really not in Georgia. And if you wanted to like start a business there, if you wanted to move any of your um, any of your accounts there, any of that stuff, they make it super simple and and very easy on foreigners 
uh, to do that because they really want to attract that investment and they really want to attract people. They, I think that they're a country that's a little, a little bit ahead of the curve, um, along with places like Estonia, in terms of understanding that this is, you know, that there's some real benefits that can come um, from having policies that are friendly towards foreigners spending more time in your country. And, and in addition to that, Georgia has like some of the most wonderful food that you'll find in the world. It has all these different subcultures up in its mount, in the Caucasus Mountains, which are, a lot of them have, you'll get these towns with like 3,000 people and they have their own languages and they've existed as their own distinct ethnic subculture for hundreds or even a thousand years. Some of them have, have managed to evade being conquered by the Mongols and the Turks and the Ottomans and all these giant empires that have come through. Um, and so it's really a, a a very unique place. There's a lot to do, um, and, but Tbilisi itself is young and vibrant. It's it, it's coming off the heels of a war that ended about 10 years ago, a very brief war with Russia. Uh, and because of that, I think that's one of the reasons why people haven't, or only recently beginning to discover it. Um, but the situation is very stable now, and in fact has been for a while. Um, and the economy there has really been sort of picking up. And so you, you feel it in the town. It's one of these cities that really has a very vibrant vibe for it. Um, and pair that with how welcoming they are and just so how beautiful it is. And you have the makings of a really great digital nomad hotspot. It's not yet, I mean, they, they have quite a few co-working spaces and, and stuff like that in Tbilisi, but it's mm. definitely emerging in the sense that it's, it's not nearly as popular as, as a lot of other destinations. You know, Georgia is one of those countries that I've been hearing a lot about recently. Um, you and my friend Travis uh, from uh, Extra Pack of Peanuts share in that it is your favorite country. And he kind of has like the same story that, you know, he used to say exactly what you say. He's like, you know, I don't know. Like they're all kind of like my kids. But ever since he went there, he like loves it. So it's definitely really piqued my interest. Um, what would you say? I mean, I know you said that it's cheap, but what would like an average, you know, cost of living be for like a month? Yeah, so I mean, I think, and that question, I always have a hard time answering that for people because mm -hmm. it, of course, it depends on your lifestyle, right? Like, are you living oh, sure. with other people? Are you living in the center of the city, etc.? Um, I would say that you could comfortably budget for something in the range of a thousand dollars for what I would consider to be a uh, sort of basic lifestyle. You could mm -hmm. probably do it for less than that if you really wanted to. I know that there's a class of people in Chiang Mai who are happy to live in like the cheapest possible apartment just to like get by on $500 a month. Um, but I would say somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 and you should be able to live pretty comfortably. I mean, you can find apartments in Tbilisi, particularly if you're willing to live a little bit outside of the center for just a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, and if you're, you know, even in the center, like in the middle of the old town, an Airbnb on just a daily rate, you know, you can find, I think I was paying like 20 or $21 a night for an mm -hmm. Airbnb on a daily rate, which really gives you a sense of how affordable the accommodation is there. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. So would you say that for, so, you know, just so that we know what that, you know, amount of money encompasses that a thousand to 1500, that's your, uh, your apartment, you know, like going out and that kind of stuff. That's everything, right? Apartment, food, expenses, yeah, everything apart from your, whatever you're investing in your business. And I think mm -hmm. if you're a digital nomad, um, I think a lot of digital nomads make the mistake of not investing money in their business. Um, but that's another discussion. Um, but, you know, everything in terms of your personal living expenses. Um, and, you know, obviously, in addition, you have, to, you have to account for if you have health care or insurance costs or anything like that. But the things that you're spending inside of the country, yes, I think that's right. 
Sure. And then what is it like to live and work from there? You know, like when you're there, like, is there a good community? Are there tons of people that, I mean, I know that it's not going to be like a Chiang Mai or like a Bali or something like that, but, you know, is there like a digital nomad community and what's like the lifestyle there? Like, is it somewhere that you can go and like hang out and is there like a lot of parties or, you know, is it for somebody who wants to be a little more like relaxed? Yeah. I mean, I think that I did not meet a lot of digital nomads when I was there, although it has been about a year and a half or so since I've been to Georgia. I'd like to go back later this summer. So it'll be interesting to see if it's changed because it is a very fast, quickly developing country Mm -hmm. um, in terms of its tourism industry. There wasn't a lot. They do have quite a bit of co-working spaces. They tend to be used, at least when I was there, um, these spaces tend to be used by like local students or or local entrepreneurs, um, less so than digital nomads. Um, but there's definitely good facilities. Um, Tbilisi itself has great nightlife. Um, I think, you know, you can probably find nightlife five or six nights a week in Tbilisi, um, particularly in the old town. Um, and so there's, 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 that's available to you if you want it. The thing that I love the most about Georgia is the countryside. And Tbilisi, the great thing is it's such a small country. From Tbilisi, you can do day trips to about half of the country. Um, and so if you're more of the outdoors type where you want to, you know, you want to spend your weekends hiking or even going out. They have some incredible wine country out there. You know, all sorts of outdoor things are easily available, but then you can still, um, you know, you can still have the benefits of living in a city while being able to access that pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so there's there's a lot to do in Tbilisi. I don't think that your average person would get bored there. I definitely do think that, you know, if you're some people are more more reliant on having a, a community of foreign digital nomads. Uh, for their social life than others. I oftentimes, I'm perfectly comfortable um, hanging out with uh, with locals. And, and Georgia is a place where the locals are very friendly. They're very eager um, to make friends uh, with people who are there, particularly the younger Georgians tend to speak very good English. Um, so I met quite a few people when I was there. And, um, and they're a fun bunch. You know, Georgians drink a lot of wine. Like, <laughs> apart from the Irish, like, I have a hard time thinking of of a culture that is is uh is as used to consuming alcoholic beverages as the georgians are so um so if that's what you're looking for that's definitely available as well awesome awesome well all right i'm already sold in georgia uh, i've been wanting to go there for a while so how about we move over to from the caucasus to another part of the world because the second place on your list was merida mexico uh, am i pronouncing that correctly yeah cool no, tell me about merida, merida. Merida. All right. I've actually, I've lived in the U.S. since I was 10 and I've never been to Mexico. I've been like all over the world and I've never been to Mexico. So uh, I'm going to have to add this to my list. Tell me about, what? how do you pronounce it again? Merida, like Meridian. Merida. Merida. Ah, Okay, Merida. Okay, Um, cool. Yeah. And so Merida is, Merida is the capital of the Yucatan state uh, in Mexico. Mm. And so it's the largest, it's really the only city in the Yucatan. And if you know anything about Mexico tourism, like most of the tourism is to the Yucatan. People go to Cancun. Tulum is really hot right now. Playa del Carmen is one of the most popular digital nomad spots. I lived there for a long time. And I always tell people if they're looking for a place to start out as a digital nomad, Playa del Carmen is easiest if you're coming from the US. Uh, it's a great community. It's really affordable. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. But I quite prefer Merida um, to just about anywhere else that I've been. I lived there for three months last year. Uh, along with my friend Nathan of Foodie Flashbacker, another travel blogger, um, and it's just it's it's a wonderful city. It is uh, it's it's fairly sizable. I think it's about a million people, oh, wow. um, which 
compared to the smaller, you know, Tulum's quite small, even Playa del Carmen's pretty, pretty small. Um, so it's a big city um, and it's very local. It's got a very, very pretty colonial historic center. Um, and then it sort of sprawls out where there's lots of additional space. There is, Merida is a trending city even within Mexico. So a lot of Mexico's like elite are moving there. So there's a lot of money coming into Merida and you see that with it, you know, restaurants and bars and, and stuff sort of uh, housing that's coming up to support these Mexicans that are moving to this city that's sort of hot, you know, in the same way that in the United States, Denver and Seattle and Austin are hot, Merida is hot, mm. a hot place within Mexico. It is um, also one, like one of the most affordable places in Mexico, which I, I, I'm, I'm still like, baffled at this intersection of how it is that Merida is, has so much money uh, in it in terms of people who have money, but also is so affordable. Um, and so it really means that you can get great bang for your buck there. Um, my friend Nathan, a foodie flashbacker, I visited him in Merida two months ago and I stayed at his two bedroom, two bath apartment with a private pool, like private pool just for him. Um, and he pays $500 a month. For wow. That. Um, and so, of course, you know, you can live cheaper. When I was living there, I lived in a one bedroom that was very nice and had like not a private pool, but a private yard. And that I think I was paying 350 a month. Um, and wow. you could go even you could get as little as like 200 a month if you really wanted to live in a studio and even cheaper if you wanted to have roommates. So, you know, you can save a lot of money living in Merida. Um, it's, it's even quite a bit cheaper than um, than a lot of the other Mexican destinations. And for that reason. Um, it's a it's a great place to go, but it's also just like a beautiful city with so much so such an incredibly vibrant restaurant scene. Like there's really good food there, um, and I'm not a foodie person, but there's definitely like there's definitely a lot to be seen there. They have a few co-working spaces for digital nomads. It is not a it is it is a place that I think more people are moving to uh, and, and are sort of starting to consider. Most of the foreigners in Merida at the moment are expats or particularly like retirees. So you have this sort of crowd of older Americans and Canadians that have chosen to retire there um, because it is also, that's the other thing about Merida, it's this, like the safest large city in Mexico. Um, okay. You know, I think a lot of people when they think about going to Mexico worry about safety. I think usually those concerns are overblown, but it is true that in, even in Playa del Carmen, you know, you have to be kind of aware of your surroundings, especially late night and stuff. That's really not the case in Merida. I once, I once left the door to my apartment open to the street in Merida, and I had like my drone and my camera and my laptop just sitting there the entire night. Like anybody who walked by could have seen it and could have just grabbed it and nobody did. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I think that gives you a sense of how, how comfortable it is there. It's really, a, it's a good place. Um, and so that's something that you're concerned about as well. Um, and, you know, and it's also like it's it's near all these wonderful things to see around there. There's a lot of wonderful cenotes, which are these underground swimming pools. You have great mine rooms. You can take um, you can take a trip for a weekend and go to Tulum and go to Playa, go to Holbosch, go to all these wonderful beach destinations. Um, there is a beach about 45 minutes away in Progresso. It's not the greatest beach in the world, but it is, mm. it's there if you wanted to just go for an afternoon. Um, and so, and plus, um, it's got a decent airport. So they have good connections to the rest of Mexico if you want to go explore the rest of Mexico. They even have international connections to the United States. Really easy to get around. I think it's a very, um, 
it is a place that has a lot of potential for digital nomads. I see more people moving there. In fact, my uh, one of my friends, uh, Moya of Tripping Mama, uh, another travel blogger, just last week, she went to Merida, uh, met up with my friend Nathan, and she loved it so much that she bought a she bought a house that she is converting into a like hostel co-living space for single mother nomads. Um, so mom, moms with kids, basically. She bought a place wow. and she's converted. She's currently in the process. If you if you follow her, she's in the process of like turning it into this like eight eight room co-living hostel that is specifically for um, like digital nomad moms, um, and uh, which I think is really cool and really really great that she's doing that because Merida could definitely use um, a little bit more of that infusion. And so you, you definitely see people are, are starting to take note of it. Um, and so that is, uh, it's it's a wonderful destination. If you're, it's really great, especially if you're, I think if, if you're a couple or if you're somebody who maybe isn't as, um, is, 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 isn't as reliant on, isn't as, doesn't necessarily need to have his like crazy nightlife or anything like that mm-hmm. because it is, a, it is a little bit more of a calm city. Um, I, I was very productive there, which was great. Um, but it's 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 a wonderful place. It's a it's a, it's a really wonderful place to live. Um, and it is it is, I think, the most affordable place I've found um, in the Western Hemisphere, apart from I mean, you could go much cheaper if you want to go like Venezuela or something. But in terms of places that I would actually recommend people living, it's it's the place that's probably the most affordable. Yeah, that's interesting because the other big benefit with Mexico or other, uh, you know, Central and South American countries is that you are in the U.S. time zone. So, you know, if you do have, you know, clients that are in the U.S., one of the tough things with being in Europe or in Asia is obviously the time difference. And uh, it's why my girlfriend, Sarah, and I have been looking at going down there for an extended period of time is because we both still have clients and that would be really nice is to live in a place where it's really cheap. Um but also still be in the American time zone. So that's really cool. Um, it yeah, will be- I think that's a big reason why Medellin is like, because Medellin is like one of the top three or four digital right. nomad destinations. And I think that's a big reason why is that people say, well, I can't go to Bali. I can't go to Chiang Mai. So, you know, because of a time zone issue. Yeah. So I'll go to Medellin. But Merida is also on that time zone. And in addition to that, what's really great about it is you're only like an hour from Miami. So oh, wow. if you needed to get back to the U.S. Um, to do meetings or anything like that, like I had to do, I had to go back a couple times while I was living there. It's really affordable and really quick. It's almost, you know, it's it's faster to get from Merida to New York than it was when I lived in Denver to get to New York. Wow. So okay. so that's that's another plus. So and and another thing that you touched on there was the safety because this is one of those topics that I get just like. It's never in the middle. It's always like I feel like people are either like, oh, don't go. Like you're going to die like essentially. And then people who like kind of like brush it off. What is your – I know that you said that you feel like it's, it's you know, pretty safe. But can you just uh, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean Merida is completely safe. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I would not – I, I would I, I would walk around in the middle of the night with headphones in, in Merida, which is not something I would recommend hardly anywhere else. Mm-hmm. The, there are – I don't know if this is true or not, but there are a lot of rumors that some of the cartels actually keep their um, their families in Merida, and for that reason, it's sort of off limits. But there is essentially zero cartel violence in Merida, which is not true in the rest of Mexico. And I think mm-hmm. that safety concerns are overplayed um, for sure. And Mexico is generally a very safe place, so I don't want to like 
scare anybody from going anywhere else in Mexico. But it is also, you know, it's undeniable that cartels are a thing in Mexico and that there is some cartel-related violence. It, it almost never targets tourists unless you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're not out to get you. Um, but that doesn't even really exist at all in Merida. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, I think a lot of people who don't travel much outside the U.S. or just kind of, um, they don't understand that actually, like if you look at safety ratings, the United States is one of the most dangerous countries to live in in the world. So uh, 100%, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. You one. know, and the only time that I've had an issue on all my travels was actually at a conference in Austin when me and a few other travel bloggers got burglarized in the United States. And I, I was like, this is so ironic. You know, I've been traveling for three years and everyone's always worried, telling me to worry about safety. And then the one place where, you know, we had like $5,000 of electronics stolen. Um, the one place where I actually had an issue was in the U S so, it yeah. can, you know, it can happen anywhere. And, and, um, particularly when you look at like rates of gun violence in the U S and stuff, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're coming from the U S or if you're comfortable traveling in the U S uh, if you're from Europe or somewhere else, like you, there's really, you're, you're really, your perceptions of safety are probably more influenced by, um, by things that are said in the media or biases. Um, that you may not even be aware of than you under, you know than you know. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Well, all right, man. Let's move on to number three, which is another place that I've heard a ton about, but I've never been to myself, and that it's that is Kiev, Ukraine. Tell me about Kiev, man. Yeah, so I'm going there. Um, in oh no way. About three weeks. Yeah. So I think it's. I have. I'm. I'm currently in the middle of deciding whether to stay there or in Budapest um, for my main base for the summer. And the reason why I will probably end up going to Kiev is because it's not on Schengen. So the 90 days that you have uh, in Schengen, if you're not an EU citizen, you only get to stay 90 out of every 180 days in all of the Schengen countries, which is like most of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Uh, the exceptions are some of the Eastern European countries like Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine. Um, and so you get a separate set of 90 days for Ukraine. So you can go there for 90 days and then take trips into Western Europe. So I think that's the plan. And um, I was persuaded into it by a few other uh, digital nomads that I've met along the road. And um, a buddy and I are going to look into getting an apartment there and, and getting set up there. I have been doing a lot of research. I've been to Kiev before. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but not for as extended periods of time uh, as I'm planning to go for like months. So it will be interesting to see how, how it works. It has definitely been a little bit more difficult than I expected to find like housing there um, because it just doesn't have the same, you know, I think when these destinations, when you get enough people coming to them, you'll, you'll get uh, industry that builds up around providing, um, providing housing, or at least you'll have like mm -hmm. Facebook groups where you can find places to live. You'll, you'll have a community of people that are there and they help each other to transition. That community is really small in Kiev and it's basically non-existent online. Um, and so that's the one downside of moving there. But there are a lot of upsides. One is, is that it's, it's a quite affordable destination. It's also one of the largest cities in Europe, which means that there's a lot, you know, if you have, a, if you like big cities, that means that there's a lot of different things to do. You, you can get all sorts of different activities, different, um, you know, everything that you need is there. Kiev is bigger than Paris in population. Wow. Um, I which I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. yeah. So it is, it is not a small city at all. Um, and in the summer, which is when I would recommend going there, it's just really pleasant. Like it's, 
it has a pretty old town. Um, you know, there is some Soviet architecture, depending on where you live. Some people, I think, don't. I was trying to talk a friend into coming, and he was like, I hate Soviet architecture. Um, <laughs> and so there's, you know, big parts of the city definitely sort of have that, like, Soviet feel to them. Um, but Kiev is is undergoing a bit of a renaissance um, culturally. And so you really feel that when you're there in terms of in terms of the bar and restaurant scene and and all of that, and um, and so I'm I'm really looking forward to spending some time there. Um, the city is, uh, the city is also, if you're into nightlife, it is one of the best cities I think I've ever seen in terms of its that the nightlife that's available there. They have this like island in the middle of the river that bisects the city, and that island is a park during the day, but along the shore of the of the island you'll find these like beach clubs. They're like river beach clubs. And they literally go from like Friday afternoon all the way until the end of the, the night on Sunday, um, just straight through, no stop um, through the entire evening. Um, so, you know, you can if you're if that's your scene, uh, if you're into that, that's that's definitely there. There's a really great like techno EDM underground sort of music scene as well. Um, so if if you're somebody who really likes to, to go out or is really into music or into dancing, I think you'd really like Kiev. Yeah, that's like a very, I don't know, I feel like Eastern European countries for some reason just have this, they tend to have really good nightlife. You know, my parents say it's because of everything that Eastern Europeaners have been through in terms of like, you know, World War II, communism, so on and so forth, that they just like need to find like a way to like let loose. And so that's why like they think or they say like they always have great nightlife. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the same thing in Bulgaria is like, you know, there's a, the clubs go all weekend, 24 um, seven. Right. So yeah, tell me about, um, I've heard that Kiev and all of Ukraine in general is cheap, but can you tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of what you can look at in terms of expenses living there in a, for a month? So I'm like very deep into that because I'm planning my budget for when I go <laughs> uh, next month. And it's very affordable in terms of your day-to-day expenses, especially if you're, if you're cooking your own food or if you're eating at sort of cheaper places. Um, mm-hmm. You could really get you could really get by quite cheaply. The challenge seems to be finding affordable housing, and it's not that there isn't affordable housing. It's just that finding it in English language websites and communicating yeah. with the owners in English is much more difficult than in other places. And so at the moment, like I'm kind of I've kind of, I've spent a lot of time trying to find apartments on Facebook or through you know using these Ukrainian sites and translating it, but the language barrier is real. Um, and so that sort of leaves you with like Airbnb, which is of course always much more expensive than if you're going to be arranging an apartment through another setting. Um, with that said, um, it's definitely the case, even on Airbnb, um, you can find studios in the range of 300 to 400 us dollars and one bedrooms going for around 500 us dollars a month. Um, I know that if you're, if you speak Ukrainian or if you have somebody who, who speaks Russian or Ukrainian, which are very similar languages, uh, if Russian's highly spoken there, um, you'd probably be able to find something for about half of that. Um, but I have been struggling to do that just on account of the language barrier. Yeah, I'm wondering if, so we have the exact same issue in Bulgaria. Um, and what we have found is that, and I, I'd just be really curious to see if you can do the same thing in Ukraine, where we've had friends who have come to Bulgaria and they will like get an Airbnb for a week or two. And then when they're on the ground, they will actually uh, go through an agency to get a long-term apartment. And then when they're ready to leave, they will break the lease. 
you know, they're, they'll be there for like, just a straight break the lease. Yeah, because oh. essentially, like, they will, yeah, they're going to pay a fine, but my friend was like, the fine was like $100. So right. the savings that he had over the long term were, you know, like, so big that the 100 bucks doesn't matter. Um, so I'd be curious to see if you can do that. Now, obviously, you know, you couldn't do that for a couple of weeks or a month. Um, but I know, like, our friend was there for three to four months. So uh, it kind of made more sense for that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's and I will be there for longer, so it's definitely something worth looking into. Yeah, for sure. Um, Another all right, thing man. that my Go friend ahead. Nathan has done, just to, to tell mm-hmm. people that comes to mind based on that, is he has his place in Merida, and he's actually worked it out where he has an annual lease because that's how that's how he got it down to so cheap for such a nice place. But he mm-hmm. will just rent it out when he's not there, um, and he has the owner's permission to do that. Um, and so. Uh, I think he's he's considering the possibility of even looking at a, a like a bit of a profit off of that. Um, so you know that's people out there who are who maybe have a base that they go back to for a significant portion of the year. Um, that's something to think about. Mm, that is, yeah. I had a mentor who said that he had found like three or four of his favorite Airbnbs throughout the world, and he had worked out like a deal with the owners where he bought them like new appliances and stuff like that to essentially say like, hey, when I'm coming through this place better be open kind of thing. So yeah. Well, cool, man. What do you say we move on to spot number four and that is Saigon, Vietnam, man. Tell me about Saigon. Saigon's great. I just got back from spending two months there. I was there January through March um, of this past year. And I think there's, there's very few cities that have the same sort of energy that is moving through Saigon or it's, it's technically called Ho Chi Minh city. Although a lot of, a lot of the uh, locals and a lot of the foreigners refer to it as Saigon. Um, and it's it's another city that's very, very big. Um, it is, it's, I, 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 I feel like it's a slightly less like overdone version of Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a lot of the things that are really great about Bangkok, which is, uh, you know, all these awesome facilities, really great air, airline connections, um, great co-working spaces, really great housing, is, is affordable, um, but doesn't have some of the problems that are associated with Bangkok. You don't have this like, you don't have quite as many tourists sort of running everything over. You don't have um, this, the the sex industry, which sort of, you know, colors, I think, a lot of people's perception of Bangkok. Um, that's not really a, a thing as much in Saigon. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a country that Vietnam is economically a country that is very much on the upswing and has been for the last 15 or so years. Um, and you see that in the city. Like they're literally, they're building skyscrapers at just this like incredible rate. Like in the time I was there, you just saw buildings going up and they, they used to have no skyline and it's turning into a skyline that is really quite sizable uh, with all these like awesome rooftop bars and really cool condo buildings you can live at. Um, but it still has the sort of old Vietnamese culture. They have these, um, these like alleyways. Most of your average like Vietnamese person in Saigon lives down these like really long sort of narrow alleyways that you can just like get lost in. Um, and they're uh, they are fascinating. They're really like they're they're just wonderful places to sort of explore a different culture uh, and go through and, and and find some street food or you know you can you can take. Um, called Grab, uh, which is Grab is the, the Uber of Southeast Asia generally, but you can just order a bike um, in Saigon to get around. And so for something like a dollar, you can basically get anywhere in the city. Um, and it's a really fun way to get around because just about everybody in the city drives motorbikes and it's crazy. And so you're on the back of these bikes with these like 
um, little Vietnamese drivers. I'm six foot four, so I like oftentimes my head was like over their helmet where I could like <laughs> see everything ahead of them. Um, but that's like that makes it a really fun place to get around. There is a there is a it is a it is a growing digital nomad um, spot. I would say of the places that we're talking about here, it's probably the most established. Mm. Um, but it's still definitely um, it's still definitely got a lot of room to grow um, in terms of the community there. And there's a yeah. lot of there's also a lot of other foreigners there. A lot of English teachers. A lot of a lot of people working at companies that are investing in Vietnam because there's so much, particularly French and American companies um, that have presences there. Yeah, I've heard of I actually have several friends who like love Vietnam and they go to Saigon pretty like regularly. So I definitely agree that it's probably like one of the bigger places that we're talking about. But it's still yeah, like, I feel like so many people just go to Thailand and Bali and they just kind of like hang out there. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree that Vietnam is probably one of the bigger places that we're talking about, but still has uh, room to grow. Now, what would you say? Are is like one person looking at in terms of expenses for a month in Saigon? Sure. So I think a um, you could probably get a place for something in the neighborhood of two fifty to three hundred U.S. dollars um, for like a you know a small studio or one bedroom or cheaper if you were doing a longer lease even. Mm. Um, you can get I, th- Saigon was a place where I I sometimes when I go to places where it's really affordable I like to splash out a little bit. So <laughs> I was staying in like nicer places that had like a pool and a gym and a big condo building, um, and I had a like a, a one bedroom with modern furniture and all that. And you know I think that those are kind of running closer to like. 650 700 a month mm-hmm. um but i you know for me the the added value of it is worth it um in terms of your day-to-day expenses um if you're if you're cooking your own food or if you're eating anything off the street there i mean that is very very cheap like comparable to thailand mm-hmm. um there are are there's some like nice clubs and stuff. So it's, you know, the same as Bangkok, right? Like Bangkok, you can get by in Bangkok for $1,500 a month um, if you're really on a budget. And you can also blow through $5,000 a month if you're, you know, if sure. you're living large. And that's probably about the same in, in Saigon. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Well, man, uh, we've made it to the last place. Uh, and we're heading back to Europe to a familiar part of Europe for me uh, on this one. And that is Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, what's Belgrade like? Belgrade is, you know, I think Belgrade is definitely like one of the, one of the trendiest spots that we've been talking about. It makes a lot of sense for digital nomads. And it's, I'm almost like, it's one of those places where I I almost can't believe that there isn't already a heavy digital nomad presence there because it offers so many of the things that you get like here in Budapest where I am right now. Belgrade's only a few hours south of here across the border. But it's not Schengen, so you can at least not from that for now. They're applying for it, um, but so the the visas are are easier, um, and so that's great. It is, it's got this again, same as Kiev or, or as we were talking about these Eastern European cities, very heavy nightlife scene. There's a lot of these clubs that are basically based on boats that are anchored on the river, um, in the that middle of cool. in the middle of the of the city. There's this huge fort and historic old town. There's very much a – the culture there is interesting. And I find it fascinating because, you know, they're coming off of not that long ago, like during our lifetimes. Um, you know, I'm 33, and so when I was eight or so, I remember – I think that's when it was. Um, you know, the, the wars in Yugoslavia, 
Um, and that's, you know, that stuff is, uh, is pretty recent. And so it really does sort of affect the character of the city. You can, there are, um, you know, that the Belgrade was, um, has, has, has spent quite a bit of energy, I think, to shed that past. Um, and is, is really, this is really now a really great moment to go visit there. And I think if, if it's, it's, if you like places like Budapest, um, then I think you're probably will like Belgrade. Um, it's, it's somewhere between like Budapest and the Kiev in terms of the feeling for it. Um, and then you also have access to like all the Balkans. You can get down to Croatia easily if you wanted to take a break and go, uh, visit some water, um, and, you know, and get out there. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a place that also has very vibrant co-working, uh, scene and, and up and coming, um, now work of digital nomads there so you're, you're not going to be alone in belgrade if you make the effort to meet other digital nomads it's a big city so you have to in any big city you have to really put yourself out there uh, in order to meet other digital nomads which is different than like if you're in kangu or if you're in chiang mai where they're just kind of everywhere yeah um <laughs> but um but if you make that effort you can definitely find it there wow that sounds awesome and what is the like what are we looking at in terms of expenses there yeah so uh you know i think uh, Belgrade, you're looking at somewhere around four to six hundred U.S. dollars for like a studio, small one bedroom. Again, depends mm. on where you're going. Could go cheaper, could go higher. Um, and you know, that's the the places I've stayed at when I was there weren't. You know, it's if you've stayed anywhere in Eastern Europe, you've probably stayed in some apartments that are like these converted rentals from that are pretty old. Uh, yeah. old buildings where like you walk up the stairwell and you're like, how many people have been murdered in this stairwell? <laughs> um, but yeah. then you get into the room and they've redone the room. So it's actually quite nice inside. Um, and so that's, that's quite a lot of what you're looking at there. Yeah. It's funny because those buildings are like everywhere in Eastern Europe and in Russia, we actually have a name for them in Bulgarian. It's called Panelki. And they're because essentially those buildings, if they're the ones that I, I think you're talking about, they essentially are kind of built like Lego blocks where right. like they were like designed to be built very quickly for a growing population and so yeah they definitely look like uh, a murder scene took place in the hallways but usually people do redo them and make them really nice inside so that's really funny but uh yeah man so those are the five places that we wanted to chat about um and again those were tbilisi merida kiev saigon and belgrade uh, those are definitely some places that I've heard a lot of good things about and, uh, I'm excited to check out at some point. Uh, but Nate, man, thank you so much for being here. And before we wrap up, tell us, uh, what's next for you? What are some new cool things coming up for you and where can people find you? Yes. So, uh, I will be, uh, I'm in Budapest here for a couple of weeks. I'll be going to Trento, Italy for a conference, uh, real quickly and then off to Minsk, Belarus, which is, um, I'm excited to go to Belarus because it is like last standing communist dictatorship in Europe. It's been a really reclusive country. They recently changed their visa policy so that you can get 30 days visa on arrival. Whereas before mm. it was nearly impossible to visit Belarus without like a lot of paperwork. Um, so that's going to be interesting. That's going to be like not, not up and coming or emerging, but like really <laughs> far off the beaten path. Um, so I'll be there for a couple weeks. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to go to Kiev um, and test out Kiev. And if, uh, if, you know, if I can, particularly if I can find a good apartment, that'll probably be my base, um, for the summer. And then I'll just do trips around Europe. And, uh, and I tend to, that's tends to be how I, how I work. I think I have places booked for about the next month. 
and then past that, I, I, I tend to try to keep a little bit of flexibility because you never know who you're going to meet on the road. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and you never know what places are going to, you know, if you're going to vibe with a place or not. Uh, and so I prefer to kind of keep a rough sketch of what I want to do, but then also maintain that flexibility. And that's the wonderful thing uh, that I love about being a digital nomad is that ability to do that, which you really, really don't get uh, in a traditional life back home. Uh, and in terms of where people can find me, uh, you can, my site is travel lemming. It's L E M M I N G, uh, dot com. I'm also on all the social medias. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. Uh, you can find me, uh, at that same handle. Uh, please feel free to go in there and, uh, and, uh, and follow me or send me an email. If anybody has any questions about the places that we're talking, which is just Nate N A T E at my at travel uh, I'm always happy to help people out with stuff. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. I think it's a good discussion to have. One thing that I think that digital nomads, digital nomads just like tourists fall prey to this, this sort of herd-like behavior where we tend mm. to go to the same places. And it's understandable because people wanna have connections. They wanna go somewhere where they know they're not gonna be alone. Um, and so everybody ends up going to Chiang Mai, to Bali, um, you know, to Medellin, uh, to Lisbon to kind of these same places over and over again. And then that's, there's something that's great about that. But you know, if you're, if you became a digital nomad because you want to travel and you want to see the world, you got to recognize that there's a lot more to the world than just those places and just the places that other people are going. Um, so really try to think a little bit more broadly uh, about where you can go. You can find digital nomads. It's such a huge trend at this point. You know, you can find other digital nomads if you're looking for them just about anywhere in the world at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And digital nomads, remote workers, like, are everywhere. You just need to know what you're looking for, and you'll find them. But, yeah, man, I want to say uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, hey, man, when you're in Eastern Europe in August, I'll be there. So if you want to take a little day trip down to Bulgaria, let me know. I'll be there. I'd love to buy a few beers. Yeah, absolutely, man. Cool. 